Chapter 36, Part 3 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Without the help of a personal interview, Genseric was sufficiently acquainted with the genius and designs of his adversary. He practiced his customary arts of fraud and delay, but he practiced them without success. His applications for peace became each hour more submissive and perhaps more sincere. But the inflexible Majorian had adopted the ancient maxim that Rome could not be safe as long as Carthage existed in a hostile state. The king of the Vandals distrusted the valor of his native subjects, who were enervated by the luxury of the south. He suspected the fidelity of the vanquished people, who abhorred him as an Arian tyrant, and the desperate measures which he executed by reducing Mauritania into a desert could not defeat the operations of the Roman emperor, who was at liberty to land his troops on any part of the African coast. But Genseric was saved from impending and inevitable ruin by the treachery of some powerful subjects, envious or apprehensive of their master's success. Guided by their secret intelligence, he surprised the unguarded fleet in the Bay of Carthagena. Many of the ships were sunk or taken, or burnt, and the preparations of three years were destroyed in a single day. After this event, the behavior of the two antagonists showed them superior to their fortune. The vandal, instead of being elated by this accidental victory, immediately renewed his solicitations for peace. The emperor of the West, who was capable of forming great designs and supporting heavy disappointments, consented to a treaty, or rather to a suspension of arms, in the full assurance that before he could restore his navy, he should be supplied with provocations to justify a second war. Majorian returned to Italy to prosecute his labors for the public happiness, and as he was conscious of his own integrity, he might long remain ignorant of the dark conspiracy which threatened his throne and his life. The recent misfortune of Carthagena sullied the glory which had dazzled the eyes of the multitude. Almost every description of civil and military officers were exasperated against the reformer, since they had all derived some advantage from the abuses which he endeavored to suppress. And the patrician Ricimer impelled the inconstant passions of the barbarians against a prince whom he esteemed and hated. The virtues of Majorian could not protect him from the impetuous sedition which broke out in the camp near Tortona, at the foot of the Alps. He was compelled to abdicate the imperial purple. Five days after his abdication, it was reported that he died of a dysentery, and the humble tomb which covered his remains was consecrated by the respect and gratitude of succeeding generations. The private character of Majorian inspired love and respect. Malicious calumny and satire excited his indignation, or, if he himself were the object, his contempt. But he protected the freedom of wit, and in the hours which the emperor gave to the familiar society of his friends, he could indulge his taste for pleasantry, without degrading the majesty of his rank. It was not, perhaps, with some regret that Ricimer sacrificed his friend to the interest of his ambition, but he resolved in a second choice to avoid the imprudent preference of superior virtue and merit. At his command, the obsequious senate of Rome bestowed the imperial title on Libius Severus, who ascended the throne of the West without emerging from the obscurity of a private condition. History has scarcely deigned to notice his birth, his elevation, his character, or his death. Severus expired as soon as his life became inconvenient to his patron, 
and it would be useless to discriminate his nominal reign in the vacant interval of six years between the death of Majorian and the elevation of Anthemius. During that period, the government was in the hands of Ricimer alone, and although the modest barbarian disclaimed the name of a king, he accumulated treasures, formed a separate army, negotiated private alliances, and ruled Italy with the same independent and despotic authority which was afterwards exercised by Odoacer and Theodoric. But his dominions were bounded by the Alps, and two Roman generals, Marcellinus and Aegidius, maintained their alliance to the Republic, by rejecting with disdain the phantom which he styled an emperor. Marcellinus still adhered to the old religion, and the devout pagans, who secretly disobeyed the laws of the church and state, applauded his profound skill in the science of divination. But he possessed the more valuable qualifications of learning, virtue, and courage. The study of the Latin literature had improved his taste, and his military talents had recommended him to the esteem and confidence of the great Aetius, in whose ruin he was involved. By a timely flight, Marcellinus escaped the rage of Valentinian, and boldly asserted his liberty amidst the convulsions of the Western Empire. His voluntary or reluctant submission to the authority of Majorian was rewarded by the government of Sicily, and the command of an army stationed in that island to oppose or attack the Vandals. But his barbarian mercenaries, after the emperor's death, were tempted to revolt by the artful liberality of Ricimer. At the head of a band of faithful followers, the intrepid Marcellinus occupied the province of Dalmatia, assumed the title of Patrician of the West, secured the love of his subjects by a mild and equitable reign, built a fleet which claimed the domination of the Hadriatic, and alternately alarmed the coasts of Italy and Africa. Aegidius, the master-general of Gaul, who equaled, or at least who imitated, the heroes of ancient Rome, proclaimed his immortal resentment against the assassins of his beloved master. A brave and numerous army was attached to his standard, and though he was prevented by the arts of Ricimer and the arms of the Visigoths from marching to the gates of Rome, he maintained his independent sovereignty beyond the Alps, and rendered the name of Aegidius respectable both in peace and war. The Franks, who had punished with exile the youthful follies of Childeric, elected the Roman general for their king. His vanity rather than his ambition was gratified by that singular honor, and when the nation, at the end of four years, repented of the injury which they had offered to the Merovingian family, he patiently acquiesced in the restoration of the lawful prince. The authority of Aegidius ended only with his life, and the suspicions of poison and secret violence, which derived some countenance from the character of Ricimer, were eagerly entertained by the passionate credulity of the Gauls. The kingdom of Italy, a name to which the Western Empire was gradually reduced, was afflicted under the reign of Ricimer by the incessant depredations of Vandal pirates. In the spring of each year, they equipped a formidable navy in the port of Carthage, and Genseric himself, though in a very advanced age, still commanded in person the most important expeditions. His designs were concealed with impenetrable secrecy till the moment that he hoisted sail. When he was asked by the pilot what course he should steer, Leave the determination to the winds, replied the barbarian with pious arrogance. They will transport us to the guilty coast on whose inhabitants have provoked the divine justice. But if Genseric himself deigned to issue more precise orders, he judged the most wealthy to be the most criminal. The Vandals repeatedly visited the coasts of Spain, Liguria, Tuscany, Campania, Lucania, 
Brutium, Apulia, Calabria, Venetia, Dalmatia, Epirus, Greece, and Sicily. They were tempted to subdue the island of Sardinia, so advantageously placed in the center of the Mediterranean, and their arms spread desolation or terror from the columns of Hercules to the mouth of the Nile. As they were more ambitious of spoil than of glory, they seldom attacked any fortified cities, or engaged any regular troops in an open field. But the celerity of their motions enabled them almost at the same time to threaten and to attack the most distant objects which attracted their desires, and as soon as they had embarked a sufficient number of horses, they no sooner landed than they swept the dismayed country with a body of light cavalry. Yet, notwithstanding the example of their king, the native Vandals and Alani insensibly declined this toilsome and perilous warfare. The hardy generation of the first conquerors was almost extinguished, and their sons, who were born in Africa, enjoyed the delicious baths and gardens which had been acquired by the valor of their fathers. Their place was readily supplied by a various multitude of Moors and Romans, of captives and outlaws, and those desperate wretches, who had already violated the laws of their country, were the most eager to promote the atrocious acts which disgraced the victories of Genseric. In the treatment of his unhappy prisoners, he sometimes consulted his avarice, and sometimes indulged his cruelty, and the massacre of five hundred noble citizens of Zante, or Zaxinthus, whose mangled bodies he cast into the Ionian Sea, was imputed by the public indignation to his latest posterity. Such crimes would not be excused by any provocations, but the war which the king of the Vandals prosecuted against the Roman Empire was justified by a specious and reasonable motive. The widow of Valentinian, Eudoxia, whom he had led captive from Rome to Carthage, was the sole heiress of the Theodosian house. Her eldest daughter, Eudoxia, became the reluctant wife of Huneric, his eldest son, and the stern father asserted a legal claim which could not be easily refuted or satisfied, demanded a just proportion of the imperial patrimony. An adequate, or at least a valuable, compensation was offered by the eastern emperor to purchase a necessary peace. Eudoxia and her younger daughter, Placidia, were honorably restored, and the fury of the Vandals was confined to the limits of the western empire. The Italians, destitute of a naval force, which alone was capable of protecting their coasts, implored the aid of the more fortunate nations of the east, who had formerly acknowledged in peace and war the supremacy of Rome but the perpetual division of two empires had alienated their interest and their inclinations. The faith of a recent treaty was alleged, and the western Romans, instead of arms and ships, could only obtain the assistance of a cold and ineffectual mediation. The haughty Ricimer, who had long struggled with the difficulties of his situation, was at length reduced to address the throne of Constantinople in a humble language of a subject, and Italy submitted as the price and security of the alliance, to accept a master from the choice of the emperor of the East. It is not the purpose of the present chapter, or even of the present volume, to continue the distinct series of the Byzantine history, but a concise view of the reign and character of the emperor Leo may explain the last efforts that were attempted to save the falling empire of the West. Since the death of the younger Theodosius, the domestic repose of Constantinople had never been interrupted by war or faction. Pulcheria had bestowed her hand and the scepter of the East on the modest virtue of Marcion. He gratefully reverenced her august rank and virgin chastity, 
and after her death he gave his people the example of the religious worship that was due to the memory of the imperial saint. Attentive to the prosperity of his own dominions, Marcion seemed to behold with indifference the misfortunes of Rome, and the obstinate refusal of a brave and active prince to draw his sword against the Vandals was ascribed to a secret promise which had formerly been exacted from him when he was a captive in the power of Genseric. The death of Marcion, after a reign of seven years, would have exposed the East to the danger of a popular election, if the superior weight of a single family had not been able to incline the balance in favor of a candidate whose interests they supported. The patrician Aspar might have placed the diadem on his own head, if he would have submitted to the Nicene Creed. During three generations the armies of the East were successfully commanded by his father, himself, and by his son, Ardaborius. His barbarian guards formed a military force that overawed the palace and the capital, and the liberal distribution of his immense treasures rendered Aspar as popular as he was powerful. He recommended the obscure name of Leo of Thrace, a military tribune, and the principal steward of his household. His nomination was unanimously ratified by the Senate, and the servant of Aspar received the imperial crown from the hands of the patriarch or bishop who was permitted to express, by this unusual ceremony, the suffrage of the deity. This emperor, the first of the name of Leo, has been distinguished by the title of the Great, from a succession of princes who gradually fixed in the opinion of the Greeks a very humble standard of heroic, or at least of royal, perfection. Yet the temperate firmness with which Leo resisted the oppression of his benefactor showed that he was conscious of his duty and of his prerogative. Aspar was astounded to find that his influence could no longer appoint a prefect of Constantinople. He presumed to reproach his sovereign with a breach of promise, and insolently shaking his purple. It is not proper, said he, that the man who is invested with this garment should be guilty of lying. Nor is it proper, replied Leo, that a prince should be compelled to resign his own judgment and the public interest to the will of his subject. After this extraordinary scene, it was impossible that the reconciliation of the emperor and the patrician could be sincere, or at least that it could be solid and permanent. An army of Isaurians was secretly levied and introduced into Constantinople, and while Leo undermined the authority and prepared the disgrace of the family of Aspar, his mild and cautious behavior restrained them from any rash and desperate attempts, which might have been fatal to themselves or to their enemies and the measures of peace and war were effected by this internal revolution. As long as Aspar degraded the majesty of the throne, the secret correspondence of religion and interest engaged him to favor the cause of Genseric. When Leo had delivered himself from that ignominious servitude, he listened to the complaints of the Italians, resolved to extirpate the tyranny of the Vandals, and declared his alliance with his colleague Anthemius, whom he solemnly invested with the diadem and purple of the West. The virtues of Anthemius have perhaps been magnified, since the imperial descent, which he could only deduce from the usurper Procopius, has been swelled into a line of emperors. But the merit of his immediate parents, their honors and their riches, rendered Anthemius as one of the most illustrious subjects of the East. His father, Procopius, obtained, after his Persian embassy, the rank of general and patrician, and the name of Anthemius was derived from his maternal grandfather, the celebrated prefect who protected with so much ability and success the infant reign of Theodosius.
the grandson of the prefect was raised above the condition of a private subject by his marriage with Euphemia, the daughter of the emperor Marcion. This splendid alliance, which might supersede the necessity of merit, hastened the promotion of Anthemius to the successive dignities of count, of master-general, of consul, and of patrician. And his merit, or his fortune, claimed the honors of a victory which was obtained on the banks of the Danube over the Huns. Without indulging in extravagant ambition, the son-in-law of Marcion might hope to be a successor. But Anthemius supported the disappointment with courage and patience, and his subsequent elevation was universally approved by the public who esteemed him worthy to reign till he ascended the throne. The emperor of the West marched from Constantinople, attended by several counts of high distinction, and a body of guards almost equal to the strength and numbers of a regular army. He entered Rome in triumph, and the choice of Leo was confirmed by the Senate, the people, and the barbarian confederates of Italy. The solemn inauguration of Anthemius was followed by the nuptials of his daughter and the patrician Ricimer, a fortunate event which was considered as the firmest security of the union and happiness of the state. The wealth of two empires was ostentatiously displayed, and many senators completed their ruin by an expensive effort to disguise their poverty. All serious business was suspended during this festival. The courts of justice were shut. The streets of Rome, the theaters, the places of public and private resort, resounded with hymeneal songs and dances, and the royal bride, clothed in silken robes, with a crown on her head, was conducted to the palace of Ricimer, who had changed his military dress for the habit of a consul and a senator. On this memorable occasion, Sidonius, whose early ambition had been so fatally blasted, appeared as the orator of Auvergne, amidst the provincial deputies who addressed the throne with congratulations or complaints. The calends of January were now approaching, and the venal poet, who had loved Avitus and esteemed Majorian, was persuaded by his friends to celebrate, in heroic verse, the merit, the felicity, the second consulship, and the future triumphs of the emperor Anthemius. Sidonius pronounced, with assurance and success, a panegyric which is still extant, and whatever might be the imperfections, either of the subject or of the composition, the welcome flatterer was immediately rewarded with the prefecture of Rome, a dignity which placed him among the illustrious personages of the empire, till he wisely preferred the more respectable character of a bishop and a saint. The Greeks ambitiously commend the piety and Catholic faith of the emperor whom they gave to the West, nor do they forget to observe that, when he left Constantinople, he converted his palace into a pious foundation of a public bath, a church, and a hospital for old men. Yet some suspicious appearances are found to sully the theological fame of Anthemius. From the conversation of Philotheus, a Macedonian sectary, he had imbibed the spirit of religious toleration, and the heretics of Rome would have assembled with impunity if the bold and vehement censure which Pope Hilary pronounced in the Church of St. Peter had not obliged him to abjure the unpopular indulgence. Even the pagans, a feeble and obscure remnant, conceived some vain hopes from the indifference or partiality of Anthemius, and his singular friendship for the philosopher Severus, whom he promoted to the consulship, was ascribed to a secret project of reviving the ancient worship of the gods. These idols were crumbled in the dust, and the mythology which had once been the creed of nations was so universally disbelieved that it might be employed without scandal, or at least without suspicion, by Christian poets. Yet, 
the vestiges of superstition were not absolutely obliterated, and the festival of the Lupercalia, whose origin had preceded the foundation of Rome, was still celebrated under the reign of Anthemius. The savage and simple rites were expressive of an early state of society, before the invention of arts and agriculture. The rustic deities who presided over the toils and pleasures of the pastoral life, Pan, Faunus, and their train of satyrs, were such as the fancy of shepherds might create, sportive, petulant, and lascivious, whose power was limited and whose malice was inoffensive. A goat was the offering best adapted to their character and attributes. The flesh of the victim was roasted on willow spits, and the riotous youths who crowded to the feast ran naked about the fields, with leather thongs in their hands, communicating, as it was supposed, the blessing of fecundity to the women whom they touched. The altar of Pan was erected, perhaps by Evander the Arcadian, in the dark recess in the side of the Palatine Hill, watered by a perpetual fountain and shaded by a hanging grove. A tradition that, in the same place, Romulus and Remus were suckled by the wolf, rendered it still more sacred and venerable in the eyes of the Romans, and this sylvan spot was gradually surrounded by the stately edifices of the Forum. After the conversion of the imperial city, the Christians still continued, in the month of February, the annual celebration of the Lupercalia, to which they ascribed a secret and mysterious influence on the genial powers of the animal and vegetable world. The bishops of Rome were solicitous to abolish a profane custom so repugnant to the spirit of Christianity, but their zeal was not supported by the authority of the civil magistrate. The inveterate abuse subsisted till the end of the fifth century, and the Pope Galasius, who purified the capital from the last stain of idolatry, appeased, by a formal apology, the murmurs of the Senate and people. End of chapter 36, part 3